If you would turn in the copy of your scriptures to Mark chapter 12, where our brother Jacob read this morning. As I was reading through these passages and studying them, I was brought to mind something that happened earlier uh, this year. Actually, it was the end of last year. And I went into Natural Grocers and I was walking through the produce and they have their produce always set up real nicely there and everything looks so good. And, and I looked and there they were, the, these huge, beautiful oranges. And they were almost the size of a softball. Like, they looked like grapefruits and they were oranges. And, and I thought, man, I've got to have one of those. <laughs> and so I went ahead and bought one, and just one. And they were a little pricey. And I was going through the checkout line, and I even made a comment to the guy there. I said, man, these are awesome. He said, yeah, those, those are some of the best-looking ones we've had. And uh, I got home and was really looking forward to that. And I started to peel it and got it peeled back and, and then opened it up. And the thing was so pithy and so dry, I couldn't even eat it. And there was just no flavor to it. It was, it was dead inside. But it looked so good on the outside. Now, so Natural Grocers doesn't, you know, have a problem with this. We have bought many oranges since. And the navel oranges that they've had this, this winter have been fantastic. And they don't look nearly as impressive. But you get them peeled back and you sink your tooth into them. And they are juicy and they're sweet. And, and so... It's, it's, I've really loved the orange this year. But that first one that looked so fantastic was a real dud. And uh, as we looked at these scriptures, there are some things that have some similarity there. And I put under the title, Under the Scrutiny of Christ. Jesus is a, here examines and brings to life different people. And he looks at their characteristics and we're going to see some things there that what you may think looks good on the outside may be completely dead on the inside. And what may be obscure and rather tiny and unnoticeable to everyone else may in reality be one of the greatest examples of life and love that you'll ever see. So let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. And we need you. We need you for everything. And Lord, just as, as this word will not have any impact on, in our hearts and minds unless you give us your Holy Spirit to, to reveal, to enlighten, to give us discernment and understanding, to make application to our own lives. Lord, unless you do that, this will be a wasted 45 minutes or so. And in fact, even worse than wasted, it may give us a false expectation or, or, or just a hardness toward the things of God. So I pray that you will speak to us and teach us. Lord, we are your children. Oh, Father, bless us this morning in your word. Amen. It's still Wednesday of Jesus' final week here on earth. He only has two days before he will be crucified. And in this passage this morning, he's still in the temple, in the temple there in the city of Jerusalem. He entered that city, remember, three days ago. And the debates 
and attacks on his authority and legitimacy have been relentless. At the first of the week, he was hailed by thousands lining the streets. They declared him to be the Messiah they had anticipated for centuries. Tuesday, the following day, he totally demolished the temple bazaar. The bazaar was situated inside the court of the Gentiles at the temple. It served as a serious added income stream for the high priest. This sacrilegious money and animal market had turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves. That is, until Jesus cleared the temple of this desecration and returned it to a place of worship, at least temporarily. Now Wednesday, Jesus is facing the vengeful backlash of the Sanhedrin, that 71-man Jewish Supreme Court. This group of religious elites ruled Jewish life. Especially this temple, which Jesus had so boldly commandeered for his father. Earlier in the day, a Sanhedrin contingent of chief priests, scribes, and elders confronted Jesus, demanding an answer about his authority to do these things. Then, a group of Pharisees and Herodians, they were sent to trap him with a thorny question on taxes and government. Still, without success, the Sanhedrin launched some Sadducees at Jesus with this bizarre scenario about heaven, which they don't even believe in, and a woman who theoretically married seven successive husbands who also successively died and left no children to any of them. Jesus yielded no ground in these battles. As for authority, he finished that discussion off, and he declared in Mark 12, Verse 10 and 11. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And the religious leaders said, it said that they left in shame. Regarding the legitimacy of paying taxes, he told the Pharisees and Herodians from verse 17... Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God's the things that are God's. And these nemeses, it says they marveled at him. They could not comprehend how he could respond like he did. And to the afterlife denying Sadducees, and the ridiculous marriage and death setup, Jesus again took them to the book of God, quoting in verses 26 and 27 from chapter 12, but concerning the dead, said Jesus, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, and the God of, and the God of Isaac. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. In response then to the final inquisitor, a single scribe, a man who had asked him, what is the great commandment? Jesus answered and he said, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And when Jesus heard the scribe's thoughtful response, 
He told him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But then we read, after that, no one dared question him. This morning, we have a big turnaround. Owing to the fact that Jesus has only two days remaining to teach and disciple, Jesus initiates contact. He initiates the contact with the religious elite. Now, he has some questions of his own for them. And he begins in verse 35 by confounding the scholar's wisdom. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple. Keep in mind as this is taking place, that he is teaching in the temple with time running out. And who is he teaching? In the Matthew passage that parallels this, it says the Pharisees were gathered together and Jesus asked them. So Jesus appropriately begins with a question regarding the identity of the biblical Messiah. One thing that they could all agree, agree upon. The biblical Messiah. But unknown, unbeknownst to these Pharisees. He is really speaking about his very own identity. He asks them. How is it that the scribes say. That the Christ is the son of David. I have a paradox here. Of the Messiah's identities. The scribes say. This Christ. Christ there can be translated as the Messiah, the anointed one. He was the promised king of God. How is it that the scribes say this Christ is the son of David? When they said son of David, what they meant was a mortal man, certainly an ancestor of David, understood by the Pharisees, scribes, and elders to be unique and special, but nonetheless and no more than a human descendant of David. This is how they looked at the Messiah. This truth that the Messiah or branch would be a descendant from David was clearly prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah declared this in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Jesse the father of David. And a branch. And whenever it says branch in the Old Testament it's talking about the Messiah. A branch shall grow out of his roots. Jesse's roots. David's roots. Followed by the prophet Jeremiah. He said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David the branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Again, from David. The Jews at the time of Jesus also knew the Messiah to be the son of David. Uh, it was just a few weeks ago that we witnessed a blind man named Bartimaeus near Jericho. He had stationed himself along the busy roadway from there to Jerusalem. And on this route, he could successfully beg for money. But upon hearing Jesus, that he was on this road, he cried out. Remember what he said. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It says that many then warned him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Go to Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. It said, When Jesus departed from there, where there is the home of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, Jesus has just been there and has brought his daughter back from the dead. It says, When he left there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Matthew 12, verse 22 through 23, it is recorded, then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. 
And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. All the multitudes were amazed. And they said, could this be the son of David? And then one final time in Matthew 15. Then behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to Jesus saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Clearly, the people of the Old Testament, the people of Israel in the New Testament, of Judah, they knew that the Messiah would be from the line of the King of David. And, look at verse 36. David himself says, in verse 36, For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, and if we read in the book of Luke, it says, in the book of Psalms, David said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is quoting this. Now, notice again. Please, let this sink in perhaps more than anything that I ever say. Where does Jesus go to make his point? Where does he go to establish what he's going to say? He makes a threefold beachhead for his authority to confront them. And look at how he does this and where he goes. First he says, for David himself said. Now David, he's a national hero. He is the king God appointed to make Israel a great nation. He is a military legend. And he is an unrivaled poet. And one of the acknowledged God-inspired writers of God's holy book. He wrote books in this book. Secondly, David himself said, by the Holy Spirit. It is not simply that David was an impressive man so that he should be listened to. But God spoke through him by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit. He was inspired by God. And then again, back to Luke, it says, in the book of Psalms. So David said this. That, that Jesus is going to quote, by the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, it is recorded in the infallible living word of God in the actual book of Psalms. Where did Jesus go to make his point? He goes where we should go. He establishes his validity on the word of God. That is where he goes. He grasps the word of God, builds his argument upon that. That is where he goes. May that be where we go. And we must study, as, as Paul wrote to Timothy, to show ourselves approved unto God. A workman who doesn't need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing this word of truth. Handling the word of God. We must study to show ourselves approved. Jesus did that. He then quotes from Psalms 110 verse 1. There it reads in a, a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, if that Old Testament scripture sounds a little bit familiar, it's probably because it's the Old Testament scripture most commonly quoted in the New Testament. More than any other scripture from the Old Testament, it's brought in the New Testament approximately 33 times in different forms in the New Testament. But here David writes, and we want to look at this carefully, and we've got to go back where it came from. We've got to go back to the Hebrew and where it was written, The Lord. L-O-R-D. All capitals. What is that? Yahweh. Exactly. This title literally translates, I am who I am. 
Yahweh. It speaks of God's self-existence, His eternality. These are characteristics of God that we know, we believe, but we cannot even begin to comprehend. He is the covenant-keeping God of His precious Israel. It is the personal name that He gave to His chosen people through His prophet Moses. If we go back to Exodus chapter 3, this is where Moses receives this name from God. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now that's a strange name. We name our children, and it always means something significant, and it says something that that you can wrap your hands around and you grasp. But this name is so magnificent. It is so beyond fully comprehending, and yet it, it, it just blares at you that this is God, that He is, that He is, has always been. He is self-existent. He is eternal. He is unlike anything Because he is the creator and all else is the creation or the created. But then this Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, writes David. My Lord is the word Adonai. L, capital L, O-R-D. And Adonai or Adonai is no lightweight title either. It translates as sovereign or ruler. Then it can be used for both human and divine rulers. But it speaks of submission and honor paid. It is a title commonly, but not exclusively, used for God. In Psalm 110, David is not telling us that God is talking with himself. The Lord said to my Lord, he had this complex, he's speaking to me. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, there are two persons here David is speaking of in his psalm. The first is clearly God the Father, Yahweh. Scripture allows no one that name but the eternal self-existent God. The second person, Adonai, is one to whom David now declares honor and authority above himself. He says, my ruler, my sovereign. The Lord Yahweh says to Adonai, This one that David also esteems as ruler. Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand. The position Yahweh gives to Adonai of his own greatest honor and authority. And Yahweh adds that he will put all of Adonai's enemies under his feet. So, David identifies in verse 37. Therefore David himself calls him Lord or Yahweh. How is he then his son? Now, pardon me, and that was a mistake in the translation that I have. Therefore David himself calls him Lord, Adonai. How is he then his son? Psalm 110 was at the time of Jesus' life on earth. Understand this. Psalm 110 was recognized as a messianic psalm. In other words, it prophesied of the Messiah to come. And it also acknowledged that Adonai in this psalm is that Messiah. Now, I don't want to to beat this to death, but it's so important to help us understand what Jesus was saying to these scribes. Therefore, if David calls the Messiah Adonai, 
his Lord, his ruler, how is Adonai his son? You see, in Jewish culture, as in most cultures around the globe and throughout time, a son or descendant was never considered the Lord or ruler of his father. Now, admittedly, in our culture, the idea of respect and authority to parent or father has greatly weakened. But throughout time, the idea of the authority of the father over his son has been a cardinal rule. It was set in stone. Now, I don't think we, I'll be honest, can really grasp all that Jesus is saying here. Because in reality, what he's saying supersedes time. You see, Adonai existed before David and existed after David. It also defies human existence. Adonai, who we will see as Jesus, was both man and God. So there will be aspects of this that we won't grasp. But we can begin to see it and glory in it and wonder at the magnificence of it. We don't want to shy away from these things. Because these things show us the glory of God. Jesus is, not or Jesus is not claiming that the Messiah is not the descendant of David. Yes, the Messiah was to be a mortal man and of the lineage of David. Many Old Testament scriptures declare this. The genealogies of Matthew 1 and Luke 3, they confirm that through both Joseph and Mary, there is a direct line to King David. But Jesus is saying that David, the Holy Spirit, and the word of God in Psalm 110 reveal that the Messiah is much, much more. In fact, one of the study Bibles says, the issue is that in this passage, Psalm 110, there is no mention of the Messiah being the son of David. Rather, the Messiah is here, the Lord of David. To quote Jesus, David himself is speaking with worship and praise of Adonai, his ruler. Grasp this. Man and God. These well-known Old Testament prophecies say the same thing. Think about these. We, we hear these at Christmas often. Yes, the Messiah is to be a man, but much more. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. How can that be? A virgin, by definition, when it's brought into the New Testament through the Septuagint, means a woman who has never had relation with a man. And yet she will conceive a son. It's impossible. Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Think about it this way. And I loved the explanation of this I heard this year. For unto us a child is born. Unto us... A son is given. A child is born. A human child is born. But that child is much more. A son is given. A son of God. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the government and peace. There will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it, establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, 
The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That capsulizes the magnificence of God in the Son and the Son as a man. But Paul, moving to the New Testament, Romans chapter 1, verse 3, Paul describes it concisely in these opening words. He says, concerning his Son, God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. He is both man and he is both God. Remember the audience. Now as we read this, remember the audience to whom Jesus is giving this theological riddle. These are the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders. They are the experts in the word of God. They are the representatives of God to the people and the people to God. They are how the common people think they know God and his will. Yet, these leaders actually hate God. They hate God as they hear his voice speaking to them at this very moment. For you see, Jesus is that Messiah. The Adonai, the one who will sit at the right hand of Yahweh until his enemies are made his footstool. You see, Christ, it, it, it gives me the picture that he's, cry, he's prying into the rock-hardened minds of these rulers with perhaps a tiny root of truth that could penetrate the smallest crack in their brain and break forth and spring forth and bring light that he is the Son of God. Yes, Jesus is Adonai that David spoke of in Psalm 110. Now, I want to tell you a very interesting historical note that was in some footnotes. James Edward, a New Testament scholar, and, and this is contemporary in many ways. He said, the fact that Psalm 110 was interpreted messianically in the first century A.D. during the time of Jesus, then non-messianically for nearly two centuries, usually with reference to Abraham rather than to David, and then only afterwards, again, back to messianically. So you see what I'm saying? At the time of Jesus, Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm, telling of the Messiah. After that century, for two centuries, it became non-messianic. And they tried to refer this to Abraham in the, in the Jewish community. And then, after approximately 200 years of that, it came back to a messianic prophecy. Here's what he says. It's to be explained by the fact that the Jewish rabbis in their struggle with emerging Christianity denied messianic associations of the son of David in hopes of undercutting proof texts for Jesus as the Christ. Only after AD 250 when the rift between synagogue and church was irreconcilable did Jewish rabbis again entertain messianic interpretations of Psalm 110. So again it is a messianic psalm. If you look in, in Jewish belief in their, in their theology. But it changed. Because they didn't want it to point to Jesus. And we read then. And the common people heard him gladly. And you can picture this can't you. Here are these guys. And we're going to read about the way they behaved. Uh, they are arrogant. They want the best of everything. They assume themselves to be God's gift to the people and they will tell the people how the law goes and what God says. And here's this upstart man who shows up. He doesn't have any rabbinical credentials. He's never gone to any of their schools. 
And they can't answer him. And he asks them questions and they're dumbfounded or they marvel. And it says, and the people gladly heard him. Jesus must have been refreshing for many of the people who worked the markets, tended the vineyards, raised wheat, cared for sheep and oxen. They fashioned pottery and wove baskets. They raised children and they kept their home. They were like us. They were the people. This Jesus was nothing like those religious teachers they had known all their lives. And at this point, Jesus gives warning about those religious oppressors. And he starts by exposing the hypocrite's heart. Mark 12, verse 38. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes. The scribes, they have streamed in like a religious rapid to confront Jesus. They have repeatedly tried to stump him with questions and scenarios about the Word of God, their own traditions, their own regulations. The scribes, we know that they are members of the Pharisees, the religious elite. And these guys are almost the elite of the elite. They are also sometimes called lawyers. As the professional scholars of the Old Testament, scribes excelled at knowing Excuse me. And knowing and applying the law of God. They were a part of every fabric of Jewish life. If there was a big wedding, a funeral, a feast, or a celebration, they would be there. Family matters, business issues, religious discussions, the scribes ruled. But Jesus said, be aware, or more precisely, be very cautiously aware of these scribes. They are snakes slithering along the walls of the temple. They are the snakes in the streets of the marketplace. Be aware of these guys. They are men who desire, and now we're going to look at six poisonous tentacles of the lives of the scribes. Six things Jesus brings out here in the list. First of all, they desire to go around in long robes. In the daily life of Jerusalem, common people dressed in colorful and multicolored robes. But you could easily spot a scribe. He was the one wearing a long white robe with blue tassels at the bottom on the hem. And this accomplished just what the scribes and the Pharisees desired. It made them stand out from all the lowly common people around them. Now, we have some vestiges of that today. For several years, our family lived near a Buddhist temple. And the monks would occasionally walk around our block and by our home wearing those long flowing brownish robes or frocks. Recently, I've been in the coffee shop and a priest from an orthodox religion often comes in with a full-length black robe and silver necklaces and chains. Some of the Catholic priests wear their things. Several years ago, I was about to assist in a wedding. I think it was a wedding or, or some event. And in the room behind the front of the church, I was asked if I wanted to put on one of these pastoral robes with a colorful collar. Uh, I opted out. Um, that's me. But that kind of apparel can be impressive. If you go to the university graduation, how many have been to one of those? You will see all kinds of impressive robes and sashes and hats of every shape and color. Now, I obviously don't know the hearts of those who wear those things. 
But Jesus certainly knew the hearts of the scribes with their long robes. It was to make an outward show. Now, as I read about these religious men strolling in their flowing white stole, which is where we get the word stole, these robes or these frock kind of things, the words of Jesus came to mind. Remember when he said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And Jesus' analogy referred to the burial tombs of Jerusalem that were literally painted white. This was to make them stand out so no one would accidentally become unclean by touching them. But could it also be that Jesus could be referring to the walking dead men scribes covered in their white long robes. Dazzling white on the outside, but absolute death underneath that garment. The scribes also desired, secondly, greetings in the marketplace. And we're not talking about like, hi, how are you, Kent? This included specific attention and recognized titles. Rabbi was a favorite which meant far more than simply teaching. It carried swagger with it, like doctor, exalted teacher, great wise one, your excellency, or the title father, which Jesus expressly warns against. Again, that is not an ancient concept. Elder so-and-so, deacon so-and-so, Pastor Joe, Father Sam, Apostle Bob. Are these always wrong? Well, the titles Apostle and Father, I believe, are wrong according to Scripture. If titles are for flattery or used to elevate someone's status, I believe they are wrong and they are dangerous. Personally, I have enough of a problem with pride and I don't need anything else like a title to cause me to think more highly of myself than I ought. But that's me. But just know, and I think among the elders and deacons serving here, We prefer our names over any title. Paul went by Paul. Peter went by Peter. Kent is good enough for me. And it's better than what some have called me. The point is, again, the scribes wanted attention. They desired acclaim. And that's how they got it. The best seats, the chief seats in the synagogues they wanted. Now most of the people attending a synagogue sat on the floor. And they were not that huge of rooms. It's not the temple. This is the synagogue. Uh, the smaller areas where they would gather uh, for Bible reading, for some teaching. They would sit on the floor and there were benches around the outside wall of the room. That is where the officials sat. They sat on the benches. The people largely sat on the floor. The chief benches or seats faced the crowd. And they were placed next to the chest that held the sacred scrolls. And from those chief seats, it allowed the scribes to look down and observe the assembly. But more importantly to them, it allowed the people to look up from the floor and observe them in their flowing robes and all their ostentatious presentation. James wrote in chapter 2, For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, 
and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes? Then you would pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. You've shown partiality. That is sin. The scribe was not the one standing or sitting on the floor. He was the one at the good place at the synagogue. They liked the best places at feasts. Uppermost rooms. When scribes arrived at the banquet, you know, sometimes you do. You, you go around to find your table with, that has your name on the card. They didn't have to do that. They sat at the table by the host or with the host. That's always where they went. The table with the host was theirs. Now these first four have been serious character flaws. But the next warning is several degrees more egregious. The scribes, it says, devour widows' houses. Literally that means to eat down their houses. Now what does that mean? Well, as part of their multifaceted role in Jewish life, scribes could serve as estate planners for widows. After all, they knew the law meticulously. They were the lawyers. But this also put a scribe in position to coerce a lonely, struggling widow into signing the deed of her very own house to the scribe. It may have been part of the compensation. Or it might have been a means to receive spiritual blessing. Daryl Bach wrote this. He said, They abused widows' hospitality, defrauded them of their estates, mismanaged their properties, and took their houses as pledges for debts that they could never repay. Is this also a contemporary crisis? It is, isn't it? Popular televised preachers gain some of their greatest income from poor elderly widows. The poor ladies watch and are convinced that if they send in contributions, seed money, God will bless them in return, financially, spiritually, even physically with healings. Many of these women live on meager fixed incomes. As the cost of living rises and their ability to afford necessities dwindles, these religious charlatans tell them that if they give, they will receive back from God 10 times, 20 times, maybe even 100 times more than they sacrificed. These word of faith preachers then go to the bank. And they purchase multi-million dollar homes. They live lavish lifestyles. And they buy private jets worth tens of millions. But the word of God holds a high place for the protection and provision of widows. I believe that is why Jesus brought this to the forefront. Exodus chapter 22. It says, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Psalm 68.5. The father of the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in His holy habitation. Jeremiah 7, If you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, and in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Then we go back to the book of James in the New Testament. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. And to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Then we go on. It says while they are bilking the poor widows. They make long prayers for a pretense. For appearance sake. For a show says the NIV. But Jesus commanded in Matthew 6. This about prayer. And when you pray. You shall not be like the hypocrites. 
For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Matthew writes, but all their works they do to be seen by men. That's what they were about. The appearance. And Jesus promises there will be consequences to this. Verse 40. There will be greater condemnation. They will be punished more severely. Scripture tells us that there are spiritual rewards given in heaven. And there are levels of condemnation in hell. Albert Martin and Fred Zaswell wrote this in an article a while back. It says, The purpose of hell is not that of rehabilitation of the sinner. It's not anything like purgatory. It's not rehabilitation of the sinner. Or even the obliteration of evil. Let me make that clear. When I said it's not like purgatory, it's not because I think there is a purgatory. It is for rehabilitation. There is no purgatory, and the Scriptures tell us that. I just... Don't want to be confusing. The purpose is retributive justice. The punishment of God on sinners. The biblical writers are not content, however, to speak of hell broadly in terms of divine justice and retribution. They go further and insist that the divine justice in hell will be specifically fitted to the guilt of each individual offender. Matthew 10 verse 15 says, Truly I say to you, they will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Matthew 11, But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. In Hebrews chapter 10, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God than has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? These statements of degrees of punishment in hell are not meant to suggest that there shall be anything less than perfect misery for every soul in hell. For every person in hell, it will be a place of weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. And this suffering will be forever. No one in hell will have it easy. Hell will be a place of torment and misery for all who are there. Precisely how the degrees of punishment will be given out is not told us, but Scripture indicates plainly that some will have a greater capacity for suffering or that some will actually bear a fiercer measure of the infliction of the wrath of God upon them. All the lost will suffer for their sin. For some that suffering will be worse than for others. And then Ligonier's wrote this in a small paragraph said, As bad as Sodom was, her sentence will be lighter on Judgment Day than Bethsaida because Sodom never saw Jesus. The sinner who never hears of Christ will go to hell. Yet his pain will be less intense than those who hear the gospel each Sunday and refuse to repent. That's sobering. After Jesus gave the people at the temple this warning about the scribes, we read in this last portion that Jesus sat opposite the treasury and he saw how the people put money into the treasury. Now, strategically placed in the temple, along the walls 
of the court of the women were 13 trumpet-shaped money funnels for receiving offerings. They were referred to as shofars because they resembled the long Jewish shofar trumpets. Money would be tossed in to the cone-shaped receptacle and go down into a box below. Now the funnels were made of metal. And remember that all the financial offerings were metal coins. In those days, no one wrote checks, no one gave online, and no one even gave paper currency. There was none. All money was coinage. Consequently, think about this, it was possible to get a pretty good idea of the size of the donation by the racket that the offering made as it was tossed in, struck the sides of the metal funnel, and went down into the box. In the minds of many Jews at that time, the more noise, the bigger the donation. The bigger the donation, the more spiritual the donor. That's a lot different than today. Thankfully, I appreciate our little offering box. I have never done what Jesus did that day and sat down across from the little box to observe how people put money into it. In case you wondered. <laughs> in fact, as some of you know who have asked me financial questions regarding the church, that's an area I mostly stay away from and know little about. If I did do what Jesus did, I still wouldn't see much and could hardly make any observation from it. But that is not the way it was at the day, that day in the temple. Here, hearts are revealed at the treasury. Verse 41. And how many, and he saw, and many who were rich put in much. Beginning with observations of giving. Observations of giving. Many who were rich put in much. And then verse 42. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites which made a quadrants. One, not many, poor, not rich, widow putting in little. A mite, and, and we have a lot of different translations here that explain this, but, but a mite or that coin is a lepta. It was a very small copper coin. It was actually the smallest coin in circulation. Some sources say it was worth about one-eighth of a cent. Now here we have an interesting thing about Mark. So that Mark's Roman audience had some idea of the value of these Jewish coins he was writing about, he explained that two of the leptas were equal to the Roman quadrants, the Roman coin. And the Roman quadrant is said to have equaled about a 64th of a day's wages. Now Jesus sees this unfold. And what does he do? He calls to himself his disciples. He's been speaking to the large crowd gathered around him in the temple. But now he steps away from the masses and he has a small group huddle with his disciples. And remember the timing. These are the ones. What will happen? He will leave his entire responsibility for ministry in their hands in two days. Do you get the weightiness, the gravity of this moment with Jesus and his disciples? He's going to be gone. But this, he urgently wants them to understand. Or assuredly, or truly, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. Assuredly, I tell you, this poor widow has given more than all those who have given to the treasury. 
And then Jesus makes an observation of hearts. In verse 43, he begins with the comparison of gifts. Truly, truly I say to you, when Jesus uses that introduction, it always means that what he's about to say is of extreme importance. This widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. And secondly, a comparison of hearts. For they all put in out of their abundance, meaning out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. It's like a three-step explanation. She, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, which was her whole livelihood. But that tells us this, even food for survival, she had no money for until she was able to earn or beg for more. So what does this mean? I read the most extreme interpretations of this incident. Some laud this poor widow as an example of deep love for God and how she gave without reservation. That we should learn from her and give everything, even to our last penny, even if it results in poverty. On the other hand, and this is from another well-respected commentator, he demanded that this woman was no example of giving at all and that these scriptures tell us nothing about her faith or motivation for giving. Rather, she was a tragic example of a victim. She was victimized by the godless Jewish religious system and the scribes who devour women's widows' houses. So, I ask you, study it. Think about it. What is God saying here? I read this, yet the contrast that Jesus points out between the scribes, he so severely denounced, and the woman he held up in comparison, as well as the fact that she gave without reservation and with no regard for her personal need, that has to tell us something. It tells me, first of all, you give without rev reservation to one you truly love. You get that? You hold nothing back when you give to one you truly love. And secondly, you give with no regard for your own personal need when you have true faith. I would not try to set a proportion or a percentage standard or even a goal for giving from this woman that Jesus points out. But I would say this. When you give of yourself to Christ, seek to give with your whole heart, without reservation. Whether, whether he leads you financially, physically, with your time, give wholeheartedly out of deep love for him who saved you. Let him lead you. You see, God loves a cheerful giver. Secondly, when you give of yourself to Christ, have no fear. You can trust him. For you only give him what is already his. And what he already has given you to give. You can trust him when you give. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Paul's letter to the Philippians. I want to read from 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1 through 5, in, in the last part, in the closing here. Because I think it's such a beautiful picture of the church and what a church that loves Jesus will be like. Moreover, brethren, 
we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. You see what's juxtaposed there? Great trial of affliction, abundance of joy. Deep poverty abounding in riches of liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. May we be that kind of a church. May we give ourselves first to the Lord and then to those among us in the body of Christ to do the will of God. Now, one of the problems with the snaky scribes and and their characteristics, I don't know if any of you felt that, but those things are attractive to me. How often do I desire that? To be elevated, to be esteemed, to have somebody recognize me, to, be, to appear spiritual. And so many of those things, it's not just the snaky scribes, it's, it's the common people. As Paul asked in, in Hebrews, he said, pray for us. I especially urge you to do this. Let us pray for each other that we will have a heart that is full of love for God first and then full of giving, generosity, liberality towards each other. And that God would keep us from the temptations that take down even the most spiritual of men. The scribes, they'd been around the Word of God most of their lives. They knew it forward and backward. And yet, it had no place in their hearts. They were, as Jesus said, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. And pray that we will not give in to that. We will not be that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord Jesus, thank you for the teaching that you gave regarding David's statement, identifying you as the Messiah, the Adonai, the Son of God, the Lord and Ruler. Lord, about your exposing of these religious leaders. And it exposes my heart to think of them too. And Lord, I thank you for the picture of this woman who, in obscurity, you get the picture, she ran in, threw it in, and ran out. Lord, may we be humble, obscure, faithful men of God to the finish line. Lord, if you want to use us in, in, in great and dramatic situations and scenes, do so. But please spare us from our pride. And if you want to use us in the background like a flower on a mountain, mountainside that no one sees but you, may we be faithful and grow for you and honor you. But whatever it be, Lord, please use us in these brief lifetimes that you've given to us. And Father, I pray for those here this morning that have struggled against you. They may have bumped up against you like the scribes did bumped up against you here in the church, hearing about the word, hearing about the gospel. But they have never followed you. They know much about you, but they don't know you. Lord, I pray for them that they would turn and follow you. And I ask that you would give them a new heart to trust you 
faith that they would believe. Lord, we have a week ahead of us and we have no idea really what will happen. We know that death can spring forward, births can happen in a moment, uh, blessings and rewards, trials and difficulties. Lord, we are thankful that we can trust you. And we ask that in all these things we will glorify and honor you. Whether we're in poverty or trial, we will have great joy and be generous. Praise be to you, for you are worthy for eternity. And we pray and look forward to your return, hoping it will be soon. Amen.